Hey, so we're going to jump into this. This is going to be, I think, a lesson that will fire up my boy Marky Mark right here on the front two rows up here. This is uh, his Imagine the New Church expressed maybe in a different way. He talks about it, and I think tonight we want to lay the context. You know, last week we talked about committing our whole life to God. We talked about the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. We talked about how we can't have compartmentalization in our faith, in our walk, like God is the Lord over all and of all. So then like He he has His way in every way. We're all in. And if you're in my share group at the end of this time, we were hearing Daryl just like, man, I used to have boxes. God, it took away all my boxes. Like there's just one box. And that that is where we all are, whether we've realized it or not. You know, like we can tend to think that we're operating on some other different mechanism, but the reality is all things are underneath His feet, right? All things are in His purview. There's not anything outside of that that the Lord doesn't know about. Tonight we're going to talk about the rise and fall of Christendom. Christendom. Uh, Notice I'm not saying the rise and fall of Christ. I'm not a heretic. But I am talking about Christendom and and, and we want to probably define terms as we get into this, because otherwise I'm about to read thoughts from Brad Briscoe and Lance Ford and several guys in their Missional Essentials study on this week that we're going through. And I think it, it could fall off of us real quick if we aren't catching these terms. So when we talk about Christendom, let's define it. Christendom, what does that mean? Well, Christendom describes the religious culture that has dominated Western society since the 4th century, when the Roman Emperor Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. How many of us remember this from the history books? Right? We know there was a time uh, right out the gate, the early church in the book of Acts, when you read about it, it's blowing, it's exploding, it's moving, it's got radical stories of people that were lying in the offering and dying and people that were being magically, you know, not magically, but divinely healed, you know, and, and the world doesn't know how to put a ram, ram, uh, uh, barriers around this. They don't know how to put ramifications of how to explain it. And man, it's just powerful. And, but they're also being killed. They're also being persecuted. Uh, the Roman Emperor Nero, for instance, is he is taking Christians and he's killing them on crosses, dipping their bodies in oil, and then stretching the roadsides with Christians down the roads with oil burning on crosses. How about that invitation? Who wants to partake in this Christ? Yet, even on the fringe, and we're going to talk about this, so I'm trying not to get ahead of myself, Even in the midst of incredible persecution, the church is soaring. And it's something to contend with. All right? So that is when we talk about Christendom, we're talking about how uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine has this conversion moment um, in a battle where he sees this cross. We're not going to get lost in that story tonight. But he gets convicted about all this and he wants to make Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. And that's a big, big deal. We'll talk about that in a minute. The post-Christendom then is where we're talking about, because if we're talking about the rise and the fall of Christendom, we have to define what do I mean by post-Christendom. And I believe this refers to the time of after Christendom when the church has lost its place of two things, power 
and influence. Power and influence. And so, when you think about Christendom, and now we're going to talk about the rise of that and then the fall of that, that leads a couple questions. And I think this will maybe prime us up a little bit before we read the Scriptures. So, these are some... Instead of at the end, I want to ask questions in the beginning to kind of pique our interest in this. What examples come to your mind tonight when you consider the influence of Christianity on American culture itself, talking about the westernization of Christianity. What examples come to mind when you consider the influence of Christianity on American culture? Okay, so you're yeah, talking about that, right? The, the big push to get Donald Trump in. Maybe even, let's go a little deeper before Donald Trumpism. What else would be? So some people would argue that, yeah, some historians would contend against that. A, a good number of Christian, uh, Christian historians are going to lobby for it. Uh, I'm talking, maybe, you okay, you want to throw that in there? Like, so like it's a big, Christmas became a big thing because maybe we're a Christian nation is what you're going for the holidays. These are not bad ideas. We're just whiteboarding it here. Yeah, Jerome. Wow. So there you go. So he's talking about the difference of the Ten Commandments. And he is right on because if you go and look at the Supreme Court building and you look up above the Supreme Court building, what do you see up there engraved in the building? Moses, right there ingrained in the building, all right? So a lawgiver, right? What else? So you're talking about the preamble of the Declaration of Independence, uh, hearing to God, maybe not Christianity, but a hearing to a God, right? A lot of the founding fathers are Masons. To be a Mason, you have to believe in a supreme power. You don't have to believe in like the God of Christian faith. You have to believe in a higher power though, but yeah. And God we trust. We put it on our dollar bill, didn't we? At some point, not originally, but marriage. Yep. That Judeo-Christian vague kind of comes in and we defined marriage. Anybody remember in the 90s when they were talking about defining marriage and all that? You remember that time when we were big boast of conservatism was really riving and thriving to define what marriage is? Oath of office, any president is sworn on a Bible still, right? Yeah, and they so help me God. All right, so this is the next question. We all undoubtedly know, number one, there is a huge influence of Christendom in the American culture, especially the founding of America. We've acknowledged that. What examples might illustrate the diminishing influence of Christianity on American culture today? What are some examples we think of how that, that, that concept is diminishing? Public school? Elaborate. What do you mean? Like just... Oh, like the Pledge of Allegiance and prayer being taken. <laughs> yeah, we, my son's class, is, so she's talking about... We, we were doing all this homework, and we're studying like Hinduism and Buddhism, and I'm like, bring it on. Love it. Let's you know, learn, and I wanted to know what he's talking about. We never got around to Christianity. Everybody was like, nah, forget that, fam. We ain't talking about that, right? So we, you discovered all kinds of stuff, didn't you, Andy? Yeah, you're like, which is kind of good because it really wasn't a good time for Christianity. All right, so there you go. And they're killing witches and... Yeah, okay, cool. So the Inquisition, we got the Holy Roman uh, Empire, or the, the Catholic Church battling countries. Have anybody ever seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven, right? Where they're like, God wills it! And they shout and they're like, as soon as this guy, one guy says it, the whole room says, God wills it! God wills it! And they just go to war and a bunch of them die. 
right? And you're just like, oh my gosh, like you guys are crazy. So in American culture, though, we see it diminishing, right? We see there are things that um, we see how that is going away. Has there ever been a time where God's people were in a place of prominence even long before that, but then lost it? What would you say? The history of humanity, even particularly, let's just exhibit A, Israel. Was Israel, the nation of Israel, God's people, did they ever have times of prominence? Yes. And did they ever lose that place of prominence? Yes. Insert what empire throws them into exile? The Babylonian empire, right? Babylonian empire comes along. How many of us know, by a show of hands, this verse? I show the reference of Jeremiah 29.11. How many know? Don't look it up. I just want to know who knows it. Jessica, what does it say? Or just even the general idea of it. Yes. And the only thing you left out, which was good. You, man, that was really good, actually. Not to harm you, right? So I know the plans I have for you. Not to harm you but to prosper you and give you hope in the future. Jessica knows Jeremiah 29, 11. Let's give it up for that. That's awesome. How many of you have heard that verse? Right? Maybe you've even seen it on a card. Anybody seen it on a card? Right? Anybody signed? They've seen their name signed, and they're like, hey, man, my verse for you. Jeremiah 29, 11. Sound good, right? Okay, great. Let's turn in our Bibles. Let's read the context of that verse. Jeremiah. I don't know what this... Hey, Steve-O, can you help me with this... This clicker must have dropped off. I don't know what it's doing. Jeremiah 29 is where we're going to be tonight. I I love this because when you read this context, you're going to go, holy smokes. I never thought of this. And and the key to that, which it might be even like uh, uh, subconsciously there, but also it's kind of key that even Jessica quoted it without saying the not to harm you. Because how we think of this verse is everything she quoted. I know the plans I have for you, to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. And that is what he's telling them in, in chapter 11, or verse 11 of Jeremiah 29. But let's look at Jeremiah 29, verse 1, reading to verse 9. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconan, Jeconai, I misspelled that one, I'm sorry, and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by hand of Eleza, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah, and the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. (laughs) What a mouthful. Somebody just named some kids Bob and Joe, right? Verse 4. Here it is. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Did you hear that? He sent them. Verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Uh, God said what? God didn't say, hey, in the cover of night, build weapons. Hide them under the wooden floors in your houses. Women, lift and do push-ups every day. And be ready 
to take a pitchfork and battle for your freedom. Does God say this? No, I'm embellishing it on purpose. He says, build houses, live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Andy would love this. Take wives. He would love that, right? Have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you, deceive you, and do not listen to their dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now let's just pause and think about verse 9. What is going on here? In verse 9 and verse 8, he's saying, guys, there's going to be church folk and religious folk who are going to tell you dreams and divine sounding things. And it's going to be like, so a seed of faith, and God is going to abundantly bless you, and we are going to break out of this bondage. We're going to no longer be exiles, and we'll go back to the land that we lost. And whole, there's probably a whole movement that's like, amen, and they're giving everything they've got to it. You can just see that, right? And God's saying, listen, all that is hogwash. Do not listen to them. I have not sent them. He is very clear in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years, uh, you feel this? When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. How long did he say? 70 years. So if in two months you hear a guy saying, we're going to be free, we just need to build an army and next year... By spring, we're going to be ready to fight. God told me to tell you that. God's saying, I did not say that, and that is not the truth, and you will be there for a set amount of time, 70 years in fact. And then cue verse 11. Hey guys, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather from you all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place which I sent you into exile. This is cool, isn't it? Verse 11 is a really cool verse just so oftenly moved out of context from its original passage. God is saying, I know the plans, but if you're doing that, then you're kind of wishing upon me in some way or another that God's going to send me into exile. Just think about that, right? Now, the reason I like that context, um, and we need to understand some things from this, the idea of exile presupposes a desire to be restored to a previous way of life. So um, the, there are certainly some examples we can see between contemporary Christian experience of displacement, uncertainty, irrelevance, um, the struggles for the Jews in the Babylon. We can connect to that. However, it's probably not the best metaphor. A lot of people will pull this text 
And they'll say, well, that's where we are. We are exiles too. And we need to claim this promise to restore uh, conservative religious things to America again. And I would say that we need to be careful because the idea of this presupposes that God is going to bring us back to something to be restored. Um, the exiled Jews, they hoped for a time when their lost kingdom would be reestablished. However, what do we learn from the text? Jeremiah challenged the Jews who had been taken into exile to withstand the desire to return to restored Israel. He's saying, guys, I want you to hold back here. I don't want you to press into this. In fact, he urged them to accept their new situation as the will of God and to seek God's blessing for those they perceived as their enemies. This is huge. Jeremiah called on them to seek the welfare of the city where God had sent them into exile in Jeremiah 29.7. So while the church today may feel a sense of exile brought to a place of uncertainty or unfamiliarity, we do not need to desire to return to this idea of Christendom. That's not what missional stuff is about. In fact, I would just say it this way. God is not calling us to return to things of old, but to participate in something completely new. The amen button is over there. A kid did that one. I love that one. They were recording it after church. So if we understand that, he's not calling us to go back. We don't need to reflect upon the diminishing thoughts of Christendom in America and almost research to some more sort of the glory days. Listen, even in the glory days, the men had slaves and that was wrong. Let that rest on us. Even in the glory days, women were treated where you didn't have rights. And that was wrong. There was no shining moment of America where we were at this arrival of utopian, just height of all heights, and then we somehow lost it. America was just as much in need of Christ at the beginning, even though we had Moses on the courthouses and the Ten Commandments. Listen, those are great. I'm glad that we have the Ten Commandments. But we need to be careful when we talk about missionality. So, uh, 1939, there's a movie, The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy, and does anybody remember Dorothy's dog's name? Toto. Toto. You remember there's this line she says to her dog, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Um, and Dorothy sees these surroundings, they're unfamiliar the people, the places she's used to seeing don't exist. She had no idea where she was, but she was certain everything around her had drastically changed. Brad says this. He says in the book, he says, a place that is strangely different describes the setting for the church today. The world has seemingly changed so quickly and radically that many churches feel like exiles in a foreign land. Like Dorothy, many churches no longer recognize their surroundings. They don't completely understand the changes that have taken place. They only know that things are not like they used to be. This is contextually what we find. And there are numerous factors that have influenced the way we see this today. There's the churches come against globalization, urbanization, postmodernism, a rise of information age, 
And those had significant influences on the church, but nothing compares or has shaken the foundation more than over the centuries than the rise and the fall of Christendom. So let's talk about it. In 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine adopted the Christian faith as his own. He has his conversion moment. And he's deciding to replace paganism with Christianity as the imperial religion. And this is big. Um, One commentator says it this way. He invited the church to come in from the margins of society where it had been operating for the previous three centuries and join him in Christianizing the empire, giving great resources, favors to the church. Constantine set in motion a process that would eventually bring all of Europe into a church-state relationship known as Christendom. And it's hard to even overstate the impact of this. Like, this is huge what happens here. Um, It has a few major changes that happen. Um, One book I recommend, if you like to read things that challenge your beliefs, um, just read it with that context. So know that I'm not recommending this book uh, without that filter. And if you do buy this book and you're reading it, we need to have active conversations so that you just don't get... just get shaken too much. But uh, George Barner wrote a book with a guy, Frank Viola, and they wrote a book called Pagan Christianity. Pagan Christianity. And what he talks about in the book is they went down and researched the beginning of most of the things that we call church and Christianity today. And they make a point to prove most of it has a root to paganism more than to Christ. And you go, that can't be. Actually, unfortunately, I agree with a good percentage of the book. I don't necessarily agree with the premise. And I think sometimes we have to ask ourselves this. Is God working in light of things or in spite of things? And the answer is yes to both. Sometimes He is working in light of it. What we're doing, He's moving in light of that. All right, uh, Daryl shares the gospel with, with, with Jim Bob. And, and God is working in Jim Bob's life in light of what Daryl has done. And then sometimes Lee Kemp acts like a moron. And when Lee Kemp acts like a moron, when he shouldn't act like a moron, but God still somehow uses whatever is going on in Lee's life, that's God working in spite of Lee, right? Not in light of Lee. I do think the book brings the premise that a lot of things have Constantinian roots, and not Christ-like roots. I do think God has used these things, though. His sovereign hand has moved in ways. But I think we need to acknowledge sometimes it was in spite of us, not in light of us. That's the argument I want to make. And you say, well, what, what did he do? I mean, tell me about some things. Here's what he did. A few of the changes that took place included these. They're not on the screen. You can just hear them. One of those was the assumption that all citizens were Christian by birth. Do you agree with that? I don't either, but that's what happened. Infant baptism as the symbol of necessary incorporation into Christian society. Here's another one. Sunday as the required day of church attendance with penalties for non-compliance. That'll get your church going, won't it? We're going to tax you. We're going to do something to you, right? The definition of orthodoxy as the common belief shared by all, which was determined by powerful church leaders supported by the state. How about this one? 
the construction of massive, ornate church buildings. Sound familiar, doesn't it? A strong distinction between clergy and laity and the uh, relegation of the laity to a largely passive role. You had clergy and then laity. And these guys, hmm, there's some things you should do, but these guys call the shots. The increased wealth of the church and the obligation of required tithes to fund the system. The division of the globe into either Christendom or heathendom and the waging war in the name of Christ and the church. It's God's will. Those pagans will either convert or die. That's pretty spooky stuff. And the use of political military force to impose the Christian faith. Think about those things. If we were living in that time, knowing what's in our heart today, would we be excited about this? Or would we have some serious convictions about it? And I think the net effect of this, of Christendom, over the centuries is that Christianity moved from being a dynamic, revolutionary, social, and spiritual movement to becoming or being a static religious institution. This is what it led to. And so the structures and everything, the rituals, um, the Christian faith has moved from being an integrated way of life that was lived out seven days a week to being an obligation that was fulfilled by attending a church service at a set time. This is Constantinian thought. And by the middle of the 20th century, in the 1900s, it is becoming clear in Europe that Christendom was in serious decline, and people use this term post-Christendom to describe the church losing its place in civilization. And so an illustration of this would be this picture here. I hope it shows up on the TV well. Oh yeah, it's pretty good. All right, so here's what we see. To just illustrate this, pre-Christendom, before Constantine is going to Christianize everything, um, you have AD 30, and the church is marginalized here. Um, it, it's not cool to be Christian, right? Um, in fact, in some places, Christians are persecuted, and some places, Christians aren't persecuted. And in those places, they're supporting Christians who are persecuted. Some Christians are being like starved, and so you have some parts of the church donating money so that those people can eat. That's what you have going on, right? It's not cool. Then you have Christendom, AD 313. The church becomes privileged here. Not marginalized, privileged. They are put in the, in the place of power and control and influence to the rest of the world, like we've been talking about. But then in the mid-20th century, you see a shift. And it started with the, with the, with the East, right? It started with Europe. Uh, I told you guys, one of my uh, guys that I've got connected to in all of this stuff when I was exposed to missional stuff was this guy named Alan Hirsch. And he says it this way. He, he would visit a church to speak, and I've seen him speak it several times in person. And he's like, hello, greetings. He's kind of odd, and he's, and he's a little bit of a nerd. He's like, greetings. I come from your future. And what is he meaning? I come from the idea that is completely post-Christendom. You go over to Europe, you see very ornate, pretty buildings, abandoned, empty, posted on the internet, but nothing's really happening inside it. And Alan's saying, it's coming to you too, America. I come from your future. 
And so what you see now is we're once again marginalized. The cross is outside of this, and you have a pluralistic, postmodern culture. I mean, Lord, just think about how even sexuality and conversations of that in our day and time, like there's like 74 ways to describe gender. I'm being serious. Like you can Google that. It's a thing. And so there's just there's a belief like, hey, well, we don't care what you believe, but then yet sometimes they kind of do. And so you see Christianity is more, um, people stand at anonymity with it because of what it's meant. Uh, Andy is running for president of student council. I'm not telling you that because you can vote for him because we aren't going to Ramsey. But he, he asked a good friend of his to be a running mate with him to be his VP. Even though you can't really elect the ticket, you have to vote for them individually. They're going to run together, right? That's their kind of their idea. And he is a sweet young man, Andy's friend. And so yesterday, Ben Bandemir offered to help us and uh, did this. We're doing this like Kennedy knockoff poster of like a side profile shot. And Andy looks pretty sharp. And we did one for Grant that way. And then we did a video and we wrote up a speech for these boys on teleprompt. And they're like saying this and it, it was really done up well. But we did this slide in his speech where I said, hey, Andy, what about saying something like this? As a person of faith, it is important for me to value, I value servant leadership. And, you know, just kind of talking to him like that's a good way of, without saying Christian and without doing different things, you can kind of lay out some language to say, yeah, I'm Christian and I'm going to serve you. And I accept all people and I love all people, right? That's what he says on the slide. And then we were writing his friend's speech. And I said, hey, so, you know, Andy has this slide. What do you want to say about anything about your spirituality? And his mom quickly popped up, like, before he could even say. She was like, well, we're, we're, we're not Christian, by the way. Like, not at all. And she's like, we're not even religious at all. And I was like, well, that's okay. Um, to me, servant-based leadership is not necessarily a Christian concept. I think it's just, it's about serving. I mean, do you have, a, what, do you have any sort of idea of how you live your life. And in that one moment, she was like, well, well, yeah, our beliefs are, are inclusion and da, da, da. And I was like, there you go. So we wrote that slide. And it wasn't an awkward moment at all. If I've painted it to be awkward, it really wasn't. It was really quick. But you could quickly see that she was like, I equivocally, undoubtedly don't want to be associated with Christianity. And I was like, you know, I revisited after we wrote the speech and I said, hey, I was talking to her because we went to school together. Uh, we graduated Southside the same year. And I said, hey, you know, didn't you go to like a Catholic school when we were growing up? And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I pretty much put you in the Catholic box all these years. I thought, you know, Catholic school, you're of the Catholic faith. And she was like, oh, no. She's like, I went there. My parents wanted me to go there. But uh, yeah, no, I never was into it. In fact, all I was reminded is how much I was going to go to hell. And so she was like, once I just got through all that, you know, after all them telling me all the time I was going to go to hell, I decided just to kind of check out it from it. And I just said, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, and so that was it. That was the spiritual part of that conversation. I guess what I'm trying to acknowledge is I think sometimes we have rose-colored glasses and we think, well, we're in the Bible Belt and... It's, you know, a big deal. Like the churches, there's so many churches in Fort Smith. We're having such, I mean, I mean, how would we have all these churches if the church wasn't making a major impact? And I would tell you, if you could sit down and listen and go to some of these things, you would see 
there really isn't a lot of impact. There's a lot of buildings. There's not a lot of kingdom movement. And you say, okay. In fact, while there may be some parts of the country that cling to Christian values, the vast majority of the population is rapidly moving away from things associated with the church. Um, another gentleman wrote a good book. I do recommend this book. Uh, you don't have to read it with such a caution lens. Um, he's, he wrote a book called Unchristian. Unchristian. And they did research and they found out to have people, when they, they surveyed that weren't a part of the church, to tell us what you think about the church. And they basically took the research and wrote the premise of all that research down to like, these were the same common things that they kept hearing about the church. And they're all these negative things. And his point is, everything out there think they know everything we believe, but all they know is what you're against. They don't know what you're for. And in fact, if this is what they call Christian, he was like, I as a Christian want to say that I'm unchristian because I'm not those things. And, and so that's a great, great read if you want to look at it. It'll make you start really thinking about things. But this, there really is a movement. And in fact, if you really want to break it down this way, um, in the eyes of many outside the church, has become completely irrelevant. I have a good friend that I have been praying for him to come to know Jesus. And his family is deeply connected into this community. Um, they own a business. They're very, very wealthy. Um, it's like one of those families that like you get paid to stay away. Like some daddy started a business and it's so well, like you don't work. And we went to school together. And I love him. He's a musician. He's a great guy. Um, and he is spiritual in some ways, but has completely no framework for why the church would even matter anymore to him. And as I hang out with him occasionally, which I don't get to do it as often as I wish I could, I just feel, man, I'm like, how do I, and what do I lead in my context to make sure that he could see that no, I, my life is better because of the body of Christ. Like there is something you're missing here. But he does challenge me when I hang out with him because I'm like, but is that really true? And in what ways does that need to grow more? Let's just face it. Conversions, baptisms, membership, retention, participation, giving, religious literacy even. The effect of the church on the culture. They are all in decline. And you go, you know, Lee, this is really depressing. It's very weighty. Why are you doing this? Well, I think many in the church continue to believe that the church maintains a central role in the life of culture. And if you believe that, you go, well, what's the big deal? Why, why can't we just have that thought? Why can't you just leave us alone? Why can't you understand we were founded on Christian principles and, and we just need to get you know, so many more Supreme Court justices or we need to get presidents and, and to do certain things? And here's my answer to this, because righteousness exalts a nation, not political power. That's what Proverbs says. And I think we have to continually concern ourselves with these things because what will happen, the big deal is this. Instead of leaning towards a missionary vision of the church, we default to church as a place where certain things happen 
and we wrongly assume that those outside the church will be interested. Here's how this plays out. If I believe that the church is still the dominant seat of culture, then all I need is some invite cards. Right? I mean, Jared, all you need to do is introduce me to all your friends, and we just need to tell them, hey guys, we have church on Sunday morning at 1015. You guys should come worship with us. And they're going to go, oh my gosh, you guys, I had no idea you have a church on Sunday at 1015 that worships? No way. You, are you guys kidding me? I'm in. I'm, no, why am I being so facetious? It doesn't work this way. So I don't go out to a group of Muslims in the parking lot and go, hey, would love to see you Sunday at 1015. You ought to come. Boy, we have childcare, I'll tell you that. I know he's been running around like a crazy person. You look exhausted. You should come, and he'll do that. Because why? I know that's not going to work. And you say, well, then what, what are you leading to? Like, what are you telling me? And I'm telling you, at times, we may feel like exiles in an unforeign land, but unlike many exiles, we don't need to yearn for what once was. Instead, we need to seek to bring life and vitality to the land where God has placed us. We should pray and toil for God's kingdom to come to the cities and the neighborhoods in which we live. It should break our heart for Fianna Hills. We ought to pray on our knees for the salvation of those homes. We ought to pray for the real brought about of true justice to America. And all the unjust things that we have would be righted in people's hearts. And people would just be rending of the heavens like, God, just move and, and, and display it. And never think, oh, we're going back some good old day. There never was a good old day. It didn't work. And it may be hard to swallow this for us, but the reality is the United States is not a Christian nation. And the sooner we come to grips with that reality, the sooner we can return to the revolutional, missional movement that exemplified for us in the early church. We have to see this as AD 30 all over again. So if you're a note taker and you've listened to me and you're like, you have beat a drum so hard tonight. We get it. It's failing. It's over. You've trashed the church. I didn't trash the church. I trashed Christendom. I'm trashing a Constantinian dead horse that God permitted it to run into the ground. You know what my Savior Jesus did say? My Savior says He is building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. My Savior watched all this happen so that they could crucify Him on a cross. And at just the right time, my Savior moved in and died for my sins on a cross and God made Him who had no sin to become sin for me and so that you and me, we could become the righteousness of God and the real church could have real true righteousness because we're all clothed in Christ's righteousness, not in your own righteousness. And then He moved through pagan things and all these things where we thought the church was going to lose and lose its power. And no, 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 He always prevails. So what, is, what am I leading us to? I'm leading us to this thought. Missionary formation. If Forefront gets this, it would look like this. The formation of every church member, every vanguard, into a missionary. 
That's what we do. So what do you do when you are in exile in a foreign land? Lee, what are you telling us to do? How do you want us to respond? What you said is so heavy. Oh, friends, I know the plans he has for us. Plans for welfare, not for evil. And he's going to give you a hope and a future. Does that verse hit you a little different now? Oh, you know what you could do? Mm. You could uh, seek the welfare of Fianna Hills. For in its welfare, you'll have yours. You could uh, seek the welfare of the River Valley. And, and, and in its welfare, you'll have welfare. If anyone ever wondered why I got so enraptured with the golf course, why did Lee Kemp, our pastor, try to organize a group of men to buy the golf course? Because missional people seek the welfare of those that are closest to them. And I presumed that one of the best ways for a community built around a golf course to really make it is to actually reinvent their golf course. It didn't work, and that's okay. You know what did work? That God continued to introduce me to more people in this community. My influence has been able to expand through that in ways where people now know me that didn't know me. I think we, when we say seek the welfare of the city, what does it mean? I mean, ecclesia, the Greek word, the ecclesia in the Old Testament, so it's the, the gathered ones, the ecclesia of the Old Testament were a group of elders of the city who would meet at the city gates and they would have the wealth and they would distribute to those who had need. I think of the churches, the ecclesia, we need to be out there in our community. We got to be on boards. We got to be involved in organizations that are getting the front door. And I would say this, there are organizations such as Young Life, FCA, uh, uh, the uh, Employment Ministry, uh, what is that, Ms. Francis? Uh, River Valley Life Corps that Ms. Francis partners with and prays with ladies. There's organizations like Hearts of Hope. There's other ministries that are out there that are, people are being court-ordered to these certain things. There's platforms that God is using and moving, and I, I just think sometimes the church isn't there. Now, the church is there in the sense that the body of Christ is always growing and moving. I believe these skills involve learning how to better identify and participate in God's activity where we live, work, and play. Missionary formation. I want to read one thing and then we're going to go to our questions uh, in this book that you don't ever want to read. It's just too convicting. But uh, I'll read you this part. All right, let's share some conviction. Missionary formation. What then is the appropriate response to this challenge? Talking about Christendom falling. The solution is to recognize the church's relationship to the culture in terms of a missionary encounter. In other words, to see that a post-Christendom context, the church once again exists within an alien world. The mission field is no longer located somewhere else. Instead, it surrounds us on every side. And the greatest problem with making superficial changes is that we falsely assume those changes will somehow help the church. We therefore put our time and energy into those practices instead of equipping and releasing people into this new, rapidly growing mission field. There is no final answer or perfect solution 
to transitioning the church in a missional direction. But if there was one, a silver bullet, it would be the formation of every church member into a missionary. God's people need to be empowered as agents of the king. We need to learn how to to think as missionaries. Furthermore, we need to develop skills that will help us meaningfully engage people and places. These skills involve learning how to better identify and participate in God's activity where we live, work, and play. However, beyond equipping people with specific missional practices, the church must be prepared to freely release people into their missional calling. The church needs to give permission. In other words, it needs to say to its members that it is good to start new initiatives. It is right to take risk for the kingdom. It's okay to miss church at a meeting when you're engaged in activity with those uninterested in the church. Imagine a church that was like that. Insert what we're trying to do at Forefront. That's my heart. If you were like, hey, you know, I'm going to miss this Wednesday because the only time this person could get together was this time. And I, I just, I've been building this relationship and this is it. I got to have coffee. I would be like, a boy. Because this is the locker room and, and, and the big thing is what we do when we're not gathered in here. You're going to touch more people that don't know Christ when you leave here than when you're in here. So where does it matter? Don't look good to me in here only. Let us self look good to the world around us. Here's some questions. In what ways do you see the lingering effects of Christendom today? Where do you see the lingering effects? Number two, what does missionary formation mean for you? If you were to think, i got to live like a missionary, and if that's a new concept tonight, what does, it, what does it mean for you? What aspects of this lesson have challenged you or convicted you? Maybe there's a tension you feel. Maybe I've angered you. I hope I haven't. What, what changes do you discern would need to be made to embrace a living as a missionary among those that are not interested? These are some thoughts I want us to do tonight. Um, I think it would be good for us to probably get at least into groups of three and... Uh, We'll see as that we start doing that. Maybe we want to do two, but let's strive to see what that looks like. I'd like this to break up and take about, I don't know, 15 minutes or so and have this conversation tonight about these questions. Any questions before we do? So we're obviously speaking about, did, he, did Constantine have a good heart behind what he did? Um, and that, I, I never conjecture to judge a person, first of all, uh, knowing that I don't know the thoughts and intents of their heart. However, uh, I'll, I'll give you my best estimation is that, if anything, he was zealous without wisdom. That would be my, my counsel of that. You know, he could have, maybe in his heart of hearts, he felt like it was good. But when you lead to practices that I think are heretical, um, for instance, if you say, well, I was born Christian. If you tell me you were born Christian and I'm sharing the gospel with you, I'm now going to go to the gospel for sure to show you that, no, you weren't born Christian, right? So that, in, in terms, speaks to either at least at the lowest level, uh, it speaks to the idea that he doesn't have, he, didn't, he had zeal without wisdom. That's being generous. But I want to paint that in generosity. 
I don't want to get to heaven and be like, well, I was sorry, Jesus. Like, you know, I was probably a little hard, you know, especially if you're over there going, hey, that's Constantine at the Kool-Aid. You know what I mean? Like, you're like that's him over there, man. I'm like, you know, like that's going to feel weird, right? You know, that, that is. So I don't get into denominational bashing. And, you know, you'll notice I don't preach against preachers per se. I'll preach against ideas. And if you think a preacher fits that, but I'm not going to get into that game. Judge lest you be judged. All right, let's get into groups. Hit me with one more. Oh, that's pretty easy. Asia. Asia, Africa, 1040 window. Places where it's illegal to be a Christian. or Places where they'll cut your head off if you're going to be a Christian. Uh, places where, it, you know, like they were, the government's telling you not to meet. Places like that, totally on the move. We're the backyard of the kingdom. I know everybody likes to think, oh, America, powerful country, all this and that. And I'm like, no, we're the backyard of the kingdom. There's a front porch and it's getting wild, right? You know, what's out there? But we're, we're like, we're definitely in the back porch. All right, let's, let's break off into groups.